Hello, church family. Thank you for joining us for another message from Res Life Holland. We hope this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus and empowers you to live the life God has for you. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Well, I'm glad to be here today. And someone was asking me a while ago uh, how, um, how I prepare sermons. And I try to lean on the Holy Spirit and how I, how I, I form a, a sermon. And one of the things that I told them is I try to answer a question. Um, a question that we have. And I've used the example. How many of you guys remember when I said 72? Anybody remember what 72 was? It's how tall I am. The information doesn't matter if it doesn't answer your question. I could have said 183. I'm like, what's that? Well, that's how many centimeters are in 72 inches. Well, who cares? If I say, well, I happen to be 72 inches, that might have satisfied a piece of curiosity that you had. You might have had that question. You might, you know, hey, I kind of, all right, now I know. You know I'm taller than him, or I'm, I'm almost as tall as him, or I'm significantly shorter than him, whatever. You would know. And so we need to... If we're getting information, if we just come to church and I talk about, you know, random Bible trivia, it doesn't change our lives like when we recognize the question. So I was reading through the Bible the other day, and in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, there was a question. And when I read this question, I immediately felt like, wait a minute, more than just he has this question. Here's what it says. Why do you complain, Jacob? That's it. Why do you complain? Now, first off, we're going to be like, well, that's easy. Because something isn't the way I want it to be. That's why I complain. Right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do? If everything isn't exactly the way that we want it to be, well, then complain about it. That's what we do. However... I want to look at scripture and find out, is that right? Now, how many of you, well, how to rephrase that? Okay, how many of you have ever seen someone who was superstitious? I used, to, I used to think about superstition, and I would only think about it in terms of black cats, broken mirrors, and walking under ladders, right? These really weird, you know, like magical stuff. And then I heard a, a better understanding and a better definition. So the dictionary says it's a widely held, unjustified belief in a supernatural causation leading to certain consequences of an action or event or the practice based on such a belief. I was reading about a science experiment they were doing with pigeons, and they were teaching pigeons how to get food by pushing a button. All right? Now, they set up a little machine that every time that the pigeon would push this certain button, it would dispense some food. But the pigeon doesn't know that instinctively. So the pigeon has to learn somehow that pushing that button will result in getting food. So they put the pigeon near the button, and they try to get the pigeon to at least accidentally hit the button. Right? So that pigeon is wandering around his cage, he's doing whatever, and then he happens on the button and out pops the food. Now, what happens occasionally is the bird or the animal that they're testing, but in this case it was pigeons, the pigeon will learn how to get the food out. 
But the pigeon will think that something else was a part of the cause. So the pigeon happened to spin a circle before hitting the button. And the pigeon will consistently spin a circle every time and hit the button. And they call that a superstition. The pigeon thinks that their spinning is a part of the solution. They do it every time, and guess what? It works. So they keep doing it, thinking that, wow, I've got this awesome thing. All I have to do is spin a circle and hit this button, and I get food. And they keep doing it, and they keep doing it, and, but they're, so they're happy. They get food. But what they have is, is by scientific definition, a superstition. There is a behavior they think is causing a good result. Actually, it has nothing to do with the result. It's delaying the dispensing of the food. Why? Because now they have to spin a circle before they get their food. They could be eating it sooner if they just knew that that had nothing to do with anything. James chapter 1 verse 20 says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. We complain. Why do we complain? We complain because things aren't the way we want them to be. And we complain because somewhere along the line, we got the idea that complaining is going to make a difference. Well, why do you complain? Well, that's what you got to do to get the food. Like, Things aren't the way I want them to be, so I'm going to complain about it. And somehow, my complaining is going to be a part of why eventually it's going to go. See, look, I complained about that for a really long time, and eventually it went away. So, got anything you want me to complain about for you? One of the reasons that we complain tends to be we, we kind of lose our cool. Well, the Bible says anger, and that's a totally different message. Why do I get angry? But Anger does not produce godly results, period. Many of us lose our cool, we, we explode, we get angry, and then we think, well, that's part of what fixed the issue. No, it wasn't. If you got a positive result, it wasn't because of the angry outburst, it wasn't because of the complaining and murmuring and gossiping. You're just... God's grace is sufficient. And when you eventually accidentally touched the button, he's like, okay, phew. And then we think, oh, that's because, right? Now, when I say don't complain, somebody is thinking, well, does that mean that I have to pretend that everything is always okay? The disciples... Remember, you remember the, the feeding of the 5,000? Okay, the disciples noticed that they were out in the desert with 5,000 people. Plus, because at that time they only counted the men. So it was 5,000 men, people, plus the women and children. Okay, they noticed they were out there. They noticed that there was no food and there was no place to buy it and they didn't have enough money to get it. And they went to Jesus and they said, Have you noticed? We're in this place. There's no food 
And even if we try to go buy some, we don't have sufficient funds to do so. Okay. Were they complaining? They went to him to get, like, to solve the problem. Okay. Dis- complaining, like, you can work on a solution. If you go to someone to solve the problem, that's not complaining. They went there to get a solution, and Jesus brought them a solution. It wasn't the solution they were expecting. They were expecting him to say, yeah, good point. Everybody go home, go home, go eat. But instead, he brought a miracle. Ephesians chapter 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The difference between a complaint and a legitimate articulation of a difficult situation is that you are, are, you are speaking to someone who can be a part of the solution and for the purpose of being a part of the solution. When we're like, oh, can you believe what my kids did again? And we're just telling, you know, calling people up just just to get them to listen, writing it out there to people who aren't anything to do with anything. You're not going to believe what happened to me, post. Did that have anything to do with the solution? No, it didn't. It says, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We must learn not to complain to people who aren't a part of the solution. And guess what? That includes our self-talk. That includes our self-talk. Is it, is it important to think through a situation and, and, and figure that, yeah, it is. But there's a difference, and you know the difference. When you're trying to solve the search, you know, what, what could I do to figure this out? What can I... And... Woe is me, look at all the terrible things that happened, look at what they did, and it did, and it did, and it You're not working on a solution. That's not wholesome, beneficial talk. When Paul was in prison, James 1, 2 through 4, did he complain? Was that his way of solution? Things were not the way he wanted them to be. By some of our definitions of, of how things ought to be worked, we'd be like, well, if things aren't the way you want to be, start complaining. Just see how far you get. (laughs) Complain. See what happens. Well, this is what Paul did. This is what Paul said. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Does the Bible tell us to talk about and focus on what we're lacking? Is that what it teaches us to do? It doesn't. So, I have six reasons why not to complain. All right? Number one, we're going to go right back to that verse that we started in. Isaiah 40, 27 says this. It says, why do you complain, Jacob, Why do you say 
Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by God. He says, why do you complain? And then he rephrases what it really means to complain. He says, why do you say or act as if everything you're going through is hidden from God and he doesn't see it? And my cause, my, my situation is disregarded by God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. God did not get exhausted before he got to solving your problem and just ran out of energy. I mean, that's what he's saying. And his understanding, no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Number one reason we don't complain is that complaining is rooted in a denial of God's provision, attention, and love. Again, there's a difference between addressing an issue, trying to find solutions, and, and just spewing the complaints to those who have no part of the solution. Ever since the Garden of Eden, discontentment and complaining has been Satan's tool. God knows. This is what he said. God knows when you eat of this tree, you will be like God. You know, Satan's overall temptation was to get them not to trust God and become discontent with what they already have. Genesis 3, 5 through 6. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree of, was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, how did she... She took some of it and ate it, and she gave, also gave some to her husband, who was with her. I always like to emphasize that. They were together. This was a team effort. And he ate it. They were in paradise. Adam and Eve were discontent by comparing themselves with God and decided that they were insufficient. To believe God created you insufficient is the foundation of original sin. 2 Corinthians 10.12, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Want to say that with me? <laughs> when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. It is unwise to compare ourselves. Recognize that is a trap that the devil has been using since day one, literally. This, this concept that, that we would compare ourselves and then find ourselves lacking and then focus on the one area where we don't see that we match up and measure up. Oh, my goodness. Tell you, I saw something the other day, and I wish I could remember it. I would have written it down if I'd have thought to, to do so. But it, it was something like, when's the last time you posted 
about the negative things in your life? When's the last time you told everybody, and they listed a bunch of these things, and then most people would answer, well, well, no, I don't, I don't post pictures of my bedhead. I don't do that. They said, if you didn't, then neither did they. Quit comparing yourself to them. They have those days, and they just don't post the pictures of it. We're comparing ourselves against these groomed ideas of who everybody is. You know, I, I like to have adventures. I like to go outside. I like to mountain bike and rock climb and, and, and hike and fish and, and all of that stuff. So you know what? On social media, if you look back, that's what you see. And people are like, man, you must live this amazingly adventuresome life because they go back and look. I'm like, you know, I haven't been able to do anything in a couple of weeks. That's why there's nothing, you know, like it looks from the outside like that's just my life is full of all of these adventures. Well, I have some. But don't compare yourself that way. So reason number one, we don't complain because complaining is rooted in the denial of God's provision, attention, and love. Next, number two, this one's simple. Philippians 2.14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Other translations say are complaining. So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among the stars in the sky. Reason number two, to obey God. God said, don't complain. So, don't do it. You know, we could stop there. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Philippians 4, 8 talks about what God's standard is for speech. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. And that's where we try to stop. All right. It's true. It's true. All of this stuff is happening in my life. It's true. It's true. Listen, when you were in kindergarten, your parents tried to teach you there is a larger criteria for what you should say than simply it's true. Why? When you were in kindergarten, you went into a grocery store and there was a bald guy. And you're like, Mom, he's bald. And your mom had to say, shh. And you're like, but it's true. Well, yeah, you just don't go around saying everything that is true. There, there needs to be more filter than just, yep, that's true. Right? I could list all the things that little kids have said that was true that they shouldn't have said. And we'd be here all morning, but we'd be laughing. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. That's what the Bible says. It's not just, is this true? But is it also noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy? That is what God says we are to focus on. 1 Corinthians 10, 9 through 11 says, We should not test Christ as some did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Notice the next verse says, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. He says, don't, don't complain. Reason number three. Reason number three. We often believe the lie that complaining will force things to change. 
And that's based on an assumption that, that if those things change, I'll be happier. And, you know, doesn't the, 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 the Constitution give me the pursuit of happiness as one of my rights? But here, here's what's interesting. Happiness is not the result of perfect life or perfect situations. There have been secular studies done. One study at Purdue University with the University of Virginia proved that they said after $60,000, more money had no positive impact on emotional well-being. They, they basically said, after, you know, yes, if you have no food and no shelter, getting some money with which to buy food and shelter does have a positive impact on your emotional well-being. But you get to a certain point and getting more and more money, getting richer and richer does not improve. Getting more perfect situations does not improve. They said once that threshold was reached, further increases in income were actually associated with a reduced happiness as a statistical whole. People from wealthier countries were satisfied with their lives later on, said Andrew. The lead author of the study and the doctor student at Purdue Department of Psychological said perhaps because they're more likely to compare themselves to others. Evaluations tend to be more influenced by the standards by which the individuals compare themselves to other people. The same study said that you can use money to buy happiness, especially if you spend it on helping other people. Ah, they said, you know what? The only correlation between spending money and being happier was when you spend that money helping other people. It is more blessed to give than receive, says the Bible. This idea that if I can complain enough about my life, if I can complain enough that eventually I'm going to have everything that I, I think that I want and then I'm going to be happy is flawed. Philippians 4, 9 through 13 says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or plenty and or want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Did you realize, how many of you knew that verse? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How many of you knew that it came right after stop complaining? That verse, he says, I can do everything, including be content in a situation that is less than ideal. Wow. That's it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Number four. Why do we not complain? James 5.9 says, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Why do we not complain? Because grumbling against someone else invites judgment against me. Matthew 7, 
verse 1 through 3. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Isn't that what a complaint is? I judge you to be lacking. I judge this situation to be lacking. Scripture tells us that when we do that, we invite judgment on ourselves. Now, how many of you grew up in the church listening to Bible stories? When I say Pharisee, what do you think? They're the bad guys. The Pharisees are like the supervillains of the New Testament. Okay, they are the bad guys. You know what else we find in the New Testament? Murderers, adulterers, thieves. They didn't get supervillain status. Jesus, like, told off. Did he ever tell off the, the thieves, the murderers, the prostitutes? No, he didn't. Who did he tell off? The Pharisees, their, their sin was worse than the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were cheating everybody. Their sin was that of finding fault in others instead of themselves. They were most severely judged because they most severely judged others. Why do I not complain? Because when I complain about whatever it is that you're doing that just happens to be bothering me, I am inviting judgment on myself. I am becoming a Pharisee who, who focuses on other people's flaws, thinking that that somehow diminishes mine. It does the exact opposite. Matthew 23, 25 through 30 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but instead you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and the dish, and then, or excuse the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Man, I don't want to be on the Pharisees team. You know, it's interesting that every society, like, has different ideas of what is bad, right? The Bible says sin is sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is sin. But we tend to have, like, decriminalized in our own minds, complaining, judgment, and hypocrisy. And we're like, well, at least I'm not a drug dealer bank robber, murderer, you know, those are the real bad guys. Now, me, I just judge everybody for everything. Both of those 
are sin. But one of them invites judgment on you. Proverbs 6.16 says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush to evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Few things stir up conflict in the community faster than griping and complaining, tattling and pointing out. How many of you have ever been on a really long road trip with a car full of kids? As a parent, what is more challenging to endure? A kid who is breathing too loud or a kid who is complaining about the kid who is breathing too loud? Enough said. Number five, because it is the opposite of love. First Peter 4, 7 through 9 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Ooh, okay. Why? Because God has asked me to. He says, treat each other with love. And you know what love does? Love covers a multitude of sins, of wrongs. He says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Why love? Um, Because all you need is love. Because love makes the world go round. Because love wins? No, because love covers a multitude of sins. Love is the lubricant of life. The reason we are told to love is because it is needed to cover a multitude of sins. That's the point. We get it backwards when we think, well, I'm going to love this person because they're never going to do anything wrong. How many people get married or, or fall in love because they're like, I found him. I found the person who will never do anything to hurt me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> they will. Not because they want to, but because we're human. Love isn't the reaction to perfection. Oh, I found someone who was perfect. Now I can love them. No. The Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. We, it is the, it is the lubricant of like, how many of you guys like love football? We have any football fans here? All right. I don't know if you guys pulled the pictures that I put in my notes or not um, to put them on the screen, but I pulled up a few pictures of football fans like in the stands in the snow. Have anybody ever seen those? Like the football fans, they're out there, you know, they may even have their bodies painted with like, you know, the letters from the, the, the college that they're doing. And it's like snowing on these guys and they're out there, you know, in their blue paint or whatever. Just like, why in the, 
I won't sit through an entire game in my, on my couch in the warmth for free. And they're paying an average of $151 to go stand there and freeze their tails off. Why? Because they love it. They love that team and being up there, being a little bit cold, having the, you know, being up in the nosebleed section, at least they're there. If <laughs> you found the pictures, they paid money to be there. They're not complaining. They're glad to be there. I looked it up. The average, the, the price to, and it wasn't the average. I think it was just the price to get into the Super Bowl started at like tickets at $4,000. What? Like, I don't watch it for free. <laughs> they've, they've almost duped me in with the funny commercials. But like, I'm, I'm the guy who goes to the football part, the, the, the Super Bowl party. Like, I try to catch the funny commercials and then I leave during the game. Like, why? Because I don't love sports. You know what I love? My kids. So you know what sports I watch? My kids. Like, it's not even accurate to say hockey because I don't watch anybody else play hockey. Just my kids who play hockey, I watch play hockey. Like, that's it. I love them. I would do that. I would sit out in the cold and do that for my kids because I love them, but not for sports, for some team with a bunch of people I don't know, because I don't love it. Not against anybody who does, but I'm just pointing out that it's an example of how love lubricates life. They're happy to be up there freezing. Why? Because they're doing something they love. 1 John 4.20, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen, or have, excuse me, have not seen. God says, hatred towards others destroys your love towards him. We, we tend to think of hatred like a rock. We're a bucket of clean water, and hatred is this rock that we let drop in the bottom. And it's kind of there where it shouldn't be. Hatred is more like a cup of puke. You drop it into the bucket, the whole bucket is ruined. It's not just, oh, you know, there's this little bit. You follow me? God says that whoever claims to love God but hates other people is a liar. Because if you love God, truly and rightly, then that will lubricate your interaction with other people who God created, by the way. Last one. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. 
If anyone serves, they should do so in the strength God provides, so that all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's read that again. He says, if you speak, you should do so as though you speak the very words of God. What did the words of God do? The words of God created everything we see. The words of God affect reality. Your words and my words have impact on reality. And Jesus says that we should be you speaking, measuring our words, recognizing, measuring back, like holding back, being cautious with our words and letting our words come out. Only the words we would want God himself to speak into existence. He says, let your words be as though they were the very words of God. Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. What we say matters. What we say impacts reality. James 3.11 says this, can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And it was talking, that whole chapter is talking about the tongue and words. Oh, I'm going to be nice right now until I get on the phone with so-and-so. And that's who I talk to. <laughs> All kinds of gross, negative, complaining. <laughs> Just... A sprinkler of yuck. And then we're thinking, no. He says, your words have the power of life. And then, and then I'm going to turn around and, and speak nice words. And Bleh. He says, no. It, you don't have fresh water and salt water coming from the same spring. Guard your mouth. James 3. Verse 1, same chapter earlier, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Here's good news. Paul says, I recognize that watching your words will be hard. In fact, of all the things I'm going to ask you to do, that's probably going to be the hardest. And if anybody pulls it off perfectly, they, I'm sure they can pull off everything. Okay? We get it. You might trip up. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up again. If you catch yourself saying dumb things, you caught yourself saying dumb things. Stop! Be intentional about it. Verse 3. When you put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by such strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts or it has a massive impact. Consider what great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is 
itself set on fire by hell. Of all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is restless, evil, and full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? That's the context. He says, man, our words are so powerful. Our words are literally what we are supposed to use to steer ourselves. He says, man, life is, life is big. How many of you have had strong winds in your life? He compares life to a, a ship that's out there being pushed by strong winds. And he says, what steers it is the words we use. When you are conscientious about the words you use, you're, you're making an impact. So, the question, the beginning, why do you complain? Well, hopefully we have a few reasons why not to anymore. And if we were one of those people who superstitiously thought that complaining was part of my solution. I'm hoping that you can just go straight to God's word. No more, no more grumbling, complaining, calling up everybody and their sister and, and, and you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. No, that's not a part of the solution. Cut that out. Go straight to God. Go straight to the person or people who are part of the solution if you need to talk about something. That's fine. I'm not saying you can never discuss something negative. That's not what pastor said. Got it? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you for the wisdom that you have put in your word that we can, can grow, that we can fulfill your purposes. Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to accomplish what you desire for us. Lord, I ask that you would remind us by your Holy Spirit when we, out of habit, begin to grumble and complain. Lord, we do not want to bring judgment on ourselves. Lord, but we want to love others, to show them your light. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.